giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Mike McDermott, co-founder and CEO of FreshBooks. Mike, thanks for joining me. Chad, thanks for having me. So, Mike, we've been a longtime user we're not a customer now, but we started using FreshBooks just after it was rebranded to FreshBooks from Second Sight. Back in the day. Back Whoa. a long All time right. ago, long, long time ago. And I'd like to, if you'll humor me, go back to those early days a little bit. That was in 2003. You were, I think, a four-person design and marketing agency. Do I have that right? Yeah, that sounds pretty accurate. Yes, <laughs> nicely done. So why did you create FreshBooks and what happened then? Well, for me, it was one of those moments of frustration. So I, I saved over an invoice. I'd been using Word and Excel to run my business and I'd kind of snapped at that mm-hmm. moment. And, and I was teaching myself some, I'd been building websites for a few years and I was teaching myself some programming skills and said, you know what, maybe I'll just, you know, I, I didn't like the software that was out there. Maybe I'll just build something to build my clients. And I thought it'd be a good way to work on my skills and show my clients what I was capable of. And, you know, that kind of became FreshBooks. How long did it take to get something that you actually started to use? So I probably in my spare time over about two weeks got something where a client could like log in and see an invoice and, you know, the, the way it worked at the start, this will really take folks back. Like there's so much off the shelf. <laughs> you get it for free stuff available today through mm-hmm. things like Rails and what have you. But, you know, the first electronic invoice I sent to my client was I sent them an email with a link to the invoice and I sent them a separate email with the username and password to log in somewhere to see the invoice. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how they did. They logged in and they could just see behind like a username and password is one very static, very ugly looking, but you know, sort of neat for the time invoice. So that was about two and a half weeks to get a real mm-hmm. prototype kind of thing. But that was not a functioning web app that people could sign up for and use by any stretch of the imagination. So I assume at that point that you fired all your clients and immediately <laughs> started working on uh, Second Sight full time, right? Oh, a- absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's that's exactly what you do. You know, right then, that's it. And the truth is, you know, it took me a little while to realize there'd be other people that would even really like this. And you know, it really did start as an inside project. So no, mm-hmm. we I fired my clients over a series of years, and mm-hmm. the the benefit of that was I had a revenue source. I pretty quickly spent about 80% of my time working on this new startup, if you will, this new product. But I had people who were serving clients and helping us generate revenue, doing the rest of the work uh, for the existing business. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a process. Was there a point in time where you said, this is what we're going to focus on going forward? Or was it much more organic than that? You know, these things sometimes aren't quite that simple. Yeah. So there's yeah. so bits of <laughs> moving, moving targets. So what we did is we had the agency. What I actually did is I ran two businesses side by each. So I got myself to spending about 80% of my time not in the agency. But one of the things we did around then was also we hired somebody full-time to work on this new product and treated it like a separate company. Mm-hmm. So that was part of how it worked. And so the trade-offs aren't quite as clear-cut when it's two two companies yeah. like that. Why right? did you so, decide to do that? Well, because the way that product got off the ground was I built the first version by myself for my agency. And pretty soon after I did that, 
somebody else started working on that product with me. And he was a freelancer to my agency. And so we just worked on it on the side. And so we just we treated it like a separate thing to kind of honor the integrity mm-hmm. of you know the relationship and his contributions and my own. And so that that's the why. So it was never really part of the agency from pretty early on. It sort right. of escaped the agency. It, yeah, it escaped it. it. It didn't get treated like it was the agency's IP. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. It could have been. We could have gone that way. But we treated it as something clear cut. I think that was helpful, very helpful. So this was back in 2003, which coincidentally is the same year that ThoughtBot started. So congratulations on being in your 16th year. (laughs) Yeah, well, you as well. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that stood out to me was that you didn't raise institutional venture capital or funding until 2014. Why is that? Why did you go so long without doing that? And what was the trigger for doing it? So there were a couple reasons for that. You know, the first is I was sort of suspicious of the whole venture game. (laughs) And I think part of that was I didn't understand it. Another part was there were some pretty bad experiences entrepreneurs had Mm -hmm. uh, at the hands of venture capitalists back in those days, especially, I guess, in my hometown of Toronto. And so I kind of had my guard up and I realized, you know, I don't understand what they do how they do it, how this stuff works. I've never built and scaled a business before. I'm just trying to figure all this stuff out. I'm completely outmatched by these folks. And so I ended up fielding a lot of phone calls over the years and starting to learn the game and ask some questions and you know do some research and listen to some podcasts. And around the time of like 2003, 2004, like the information disparity between VCs and people starting and founding companies was Mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. Like the information asymmetry was gigantic. Now, thanks to the help of, you know, it was frankly a few formative blogs and now there's just all kinds of information and there's Quora and everything else. It's a much evener playing field around how this stuff works. Still takes time to learn it all. And obviously when you do 20 deals a year versus, you know, one, one deal, you know, a decade, it's, it's a, you you don't have those practices of VCs, but the point is it was different. So there was that, and we were very focused on our customers, and I was very concerned that bringing on venture capitalists would force me away from that. Like, I'd basically lose control of how we serve our customers, and that that would be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I was deeply concerned about that. So it took time, you know, built up the business, and and then when I peeled it apart, what I realized is, okay, I had started to learn that game. I knew how to manage and run a business. You know, we had taken away the technical risk because people liked the product and were buying it. We had a business model, all these things. We had scale. We're 100 employees, and then the last piece of the puzzle for me was actually the team. Mm -hmm. This is a thing that's actually harder to do than most people realize. Probably if I had venture capitalists, I would have had more success sooner. They would have probably helped me find the right people. But Mm -hmm. once I hired an executive, then I realized, okay, it's really just capital. And that's why we flipped the switch. And it was like, okay, now capital is the only thing that's holding us back from scaling. and, uh, And we've got a great culture of service. So I'm not worried about that anymore. So at the point where you were 100 people and you had grown from 2003 to 2014 to 100 people, were you operating profitably? So we had raised some angel money and sometimes mm-hmm. we'd, you know, brought some of that in and, and spent it. And part of the reason that sort of contributed to, to fundraising was we were sort of capable of being under our own steam, but 
I could see the rate of growth was not going to be as interesting to me. Right. And, you know, that was almost like, hey, there's adventure behind one door and there's, you know, a pretty predictable thing in the other. And I just don't know if my attention span is <laughs> well mm-hmm. suited to this other thing. It's growing. It's great. But it's hard to see how uh, we really get on a track that sort of right. is as interesting as the previous decade. Right. So you were you were running, but you didn't necessarily have the capability to invest in more significant growth. I think that's a fair way to frame yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. How much have you grown since then? Well, many times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't really disclose our financials mm-hmm. or anything like that, but we've grown many times over since that point in time. I guess a better way to say is, have you achieved what you wanted to achieve? I would say yes, and we're continuing to. Like, nothing ever goes exactly to plan. There's mm-hmm. a few entrepreneurs who've, yes, it's gone exactly, exactly. But, you know, some things have gone differently. Some things have gone better. Some things have gone worse. That's that's the adventure. It's like you don't know, right? And so we've continued. We continue to have strong growth. We feel like with a new platform that we have now, or sort of reimagining of our, of our initial offering, that uh, we're really set up well for the next decade. And that was the intent in, yeah. in building a new version of our product. Yeah. So I know you designed, built, and launched the new version in 2016. And I think I saw in the press release that it was in the works for a year and a half. That's right. A year and a half. Mm-hmm. But then we had to do some work you kind of finish it once it was live. <laughs> yeah. Were you working on that before you closed the funding round or, or did you start immediately after you closed it? So I think what we had started doing around that time was kind of prototyping some concepts for what a different experience could look like. Because the impetus for the new platform was actually design and UX. Mm-hmm. So we had you know started with mock-ups and like just two-dimensional Photoshop, if you will, kind of experiences. And so we were playing around with those concepts. We hadn't really gotten into you know building any software, but um, yeah, I think around that time we'd started envisioning what what a next version could look like. Now, who within the company was the desire to do this redesign coming from? Was it you? Or was it other people? You know, I think in a lot of companies, it's a real effort to try and convince people to do a redesign. I think in our company, you know, we had market-leading product at the time. Our customers were super happy. They were not asking us for a new thing. But we had always, because of our sort of beginnings from the technology side, we'd always had a sense that there was a cleaner architecture out there. You know, we had a lot of, uh, you know, this is a fairly technical audience, so a lot of front-end and back-end code kind of intermingled. Mm-hmm. It was not a cleanly architected system. And um, obviously, we had achieved a lot in terms of growth, but it wasn't a system that was well-suited to growing 5, 10, 20 more times. Mm-hmm. So there was that knowledge inside. And then there's also, you know, being a technology company, people are excited about new and different and what can we do. And so for me, it was pretty simple because... We had a great success with the application, which is web-based. We actually had great success building mobile apps as well, mm-hmm. uh, really, really well adopted, and got you know we won like a Webby Award for our mobile apps. The thing was, I could just see the world moving so fast, and the expectations of consumers changing to things like Uber, like I push a button, a car shows up. I just knew that our front-end experience was not that, and we weren't set up to really succeed five years beyond where we were, and that mm-hmm. that's why we did it. 
mm-hmm. right? Was to win long term. And so that was the final, like I, I had to make the decision, but it was on a five year out rationale, right? It was like, okay, customers are happy today. You know, we're winning in the marketplace, but five years from now, do I feel like we can be competitive with this offering? And I frankly didn't. Yeah. Once the trigger was decided to be pulled on actually moving forward with this work, did you go into it knowing that it was going to be a year and a half long effort or more? Well, part of the reason we didn't get going straight away was because people kept telling me it would take a couple of years. Yeah. And I kept saying, well, if you're going to tell me it's a couple of years, like I just multiply by three, mm-hmm. right? So that's six years. Like, no, the answer. <laughs> and so it was about the time they said about nine months that I was like, you think it's going to take nine months? Okay, then right. we'll do it. And that's, it was about 18. And mm-hmm. and then there was still work to kind of finish it out once we got live for sure. But um, that was more of the thought process. So with the nature of those projects, you know, and as a consulting company, we almost never actually recommend our customers do a rewrite, you know, because you can really fall into some pitfalls around the scope and you can end up in a place where you are adding features or making changes that fundamentally change the product. You never finish, you know, it's called second system syndrome. So is there anything specific that you did to avoid that? And make sure that you had something that could be launched in a reasonable time frame. So we did something that's going to blow your mind. But I'll just say, like, I think you're giving your your customers good counsel. Mm-hmm. That's probably the best path in a lot of cases. I, th- I think our challenge was really just on the UX. Like, there were, it was because it was a design problem. Right. Right. Getting to that next level of user experience. And that was the reason why it wasn't a refactor job. But, but here's what we did, because you're onto something. And it's like, how do you mitigate those risks? So we knew it was risky. It was very scary, right? Like, Business performance could be worse. Customers may hate it. I could go on, but there's all these risks. And Mm -hmm. so what we decided to do, and this was part of, I think, what made us successful with it, was we actually ended up creating a separate company in its own brand name. And that's where we built the new FreshBooks. Mm -hmm. We kind of had the back end layer was kind of the same. So what talked to the database, like we had a, I don't know if if you want to think of it as like a middleware layer or whatever, but our access to the database and some APIs there were were the same. So we were building a new front end and some new capabilities and teasing out some business logic and making it better available. But the point is uh, we created another product that lived on another domain that was completely unrelated to FreshBooks. And that is where we built the new FreshBooks. And we tested it and we threw customers at it, customers that were not our customers. Like we signed people up to understand like, hey, is the business performance the same? What are people saying? Does the product work? And so we had kind of as empirical a test between systems as you mm-hmm. can have before we sort of decided, okay, that would be the new FreshBooks and, and we'll, we'll merge it back over here. We kind of acquired that company after uh, it had proven its uh, value as a, a Petri dish. Now, you actually, you acquired that company. Is that technically, that's how you had to pull it off? No, that's what we told the users of that company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting because those customers had no idea it was actually FreshBooks. That's right. That's amazing. Was the team that was working on that competing product with the new user interface, were they still working on the old FreshBooks too? Or were they splitting their time or they were, were they exclusively focused on the redesign? No, they were exclusively focused. And the way it worked with us is it started as a small group of people exclusively focused, and then it was more people, and then it was most people, and then it was kind of almost all, but not all. Mm-hmm. 
Is there anything that you would do differently knowing what you know now about that process? Well, you know, I think the advice you give your customers is great. Like I think Yeah, it, work iteratively whenever possible is basically Yeah, the do advice. do everything you can to not do the rewrite. And then I think probably whichever path you choose, like be prepared to pony up with the investment dollars mm-hmm. to get the job done. It's like I think we could have doubled or tripled <laughs> like our investment in product development over these years and it was not inexpensive, but we probably should have just like gone even harder at it mm-hmm. once we got to a point where we could scale and paralyze work. Right. You're saying that if you had done that over the decade before on the core FreshBooks product, you might not have had to rewrite No, it? I'm actually saying like once we decided rewrite, I think we could have oh. invested a lot more once we fired the gun and said okay. go. That was the point I was trying to make. Mm-hmm. I think um, with regards to the old system, what could we have done differently? I think I want to put in the bucket of no regrets because- right. We did the thing that was really hard, which was we built a product people loved. Right, right. Like that's a lot harder than building well, lots of things. Right? right. You can build perfect technology if you don't have that, it doesn't matter. Right. Mm-hmm. So we got the hard part right. We just ended up with some technology that left us with uh, some challenges. Yeah. So you've mentioned scale, you know, a lot and that it sounds like that's one of the things that's driving you. You also mentioned you didn't necessarily feel like you knew what was involved in scaling and wanted to figure it out. Is that accurate? I think it would be accurate in 2004 right, or right. You know, five when I'm working in my parents' basement with like four people. Right. right. Uh, yeah. And having never worked inside like a corporation before, that is all true. So what did you figure out? You've obviously grown from four people in the basement to now hundreds of people. So what did what did you figure out along the way? Well, I think a lot of little things. Yeah. <laughs> Back then, everything was kind of an overwhelming challenge you're solving for the first time. And if you're solving 100 problems for the first time, it's slow and painful and all that good stuff. Do you so, worry about reinventing the wheel? You're solving something for the first time yourself, but you say, someone's probably done this before. Like, this problem's not unique, but you also want to find the way that's authentic to FreshBooks? Yeah, well, let's just take that to myself as, Mm -hmm. like, a company leader and builder is I was constantly solving problems that other people have figured out how to solve, like how to manage people, how to hire people, right? Mm -hmm. Like, these are things that I was trying to figure out back then. What I did was I just leaned on, I just, I surrounded myself with advisors who I would call, Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I would ask for help and, you know, get one or two opinions outside of my own head on a problem, then make a call and get on with it. That was my way to speed some of the stuff up because I'd never seen it before. So, okay, let me get a couple other perspectives and then just pick something. And it's usually, you know, almost never exactly what they're saying, but it helps me round out my perspective, make yeah. a decision and move on. Right. It's actually in total. Like breaking it down, I probably get more advice from advisors that I say, it's great that you have that perspective and it helps me solidify how I actually feel. And I'm doing in some ways the exact opposite of them. But if I didn't have their advice, I would have never arrived at what I believe or what I think is the right way. I think that's right. I think when you have an ambiguous problem like that, you want to get perspectives. It's it's like the blank page syndrome. Like mm-hmm. I'm a much better editor than you know, like someone on the team to like, here, Mike, write this thing for us. Is like, tell you what, 
bring me a draft. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'll probably have some great feedback for you. And I think a lot of the problems you want to solve are like that. And if you have to write the draft and then figure out what's wrong with it, it's just, it's just a much longer process. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, that you strive and have achieved a really high level of customer service at FreshBooks. How has that scaled? Has there been things along the way that you had to fundamentally do differently than you did before in order to continue doing that high level of service as you scale? Absolutely. And in some ways, no. So Mm -hmm. we've done a lot of different things with our support team over the year to kind of keep it innovative. You know, in the earliest days, for example, our support team members would only do support three days a week. And the rest of the time, they would spend just kind of doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. And other stuff for them might be, you know, working on some systems. It might be like creating some unique experiences for customers. Anyways, the point is when you have a handful of reps, that's okay. When you've mm-hmm. got more than a handful, it's not practical anymore. And so we've had to figure out how do you keep the ethos? Like so much of customer service is actually just culture. Mm-hmm. It's how you behave. You know, if a customer has a problem, are you like, okay, I'll get to that? Or is it like, I'm here right now, there's nothing more important to me than helping you solve this thing? And sort of imbuing that in folks so that they go and actually solve it versus lukewarm, send something back that's just not that helpful. Um, There are times when, you know, there are limits to what we can do to help people, and that's frustrating to us and and them. But, you know, by and large, if we can solve the problem, we're going to go and solve it for you. That is a cultural thing that just needs to be perpetuated and reinforced and and celebrated. And I think we've done a a good job of that over the years. And, you know, by telling everybody it's important and actually sending everyone the company to customer service for the first month is probably one of the biggest things we did. So I think you get a lot for free when you do things like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's ongoing. It'll never end, right? The battle to sort of keep that being excellent. Yeah. So when I'm a new team member at FreshBooks and start for my first month, I'm working in customer service. That's right. And I do that full time. You know, I'm not doing the job I was hired for for the first month. That's correct. Are people receptive to that? (laughs) To be honest, in our experience, yes. I mean, Mm -hmm. we tell you before, we don't surprise you with it on day one. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're kind of opting into that because you believe, you know, probably some shared beliefs around providing the right experiences for folks and how you do that. I'll tell you, like, generally our engineers and product folks love it because a lot of times you go join a company and you're going to go write some software and you never even get a chance to really learn what the product is or who the customer is. So it ends up paying, I think, enormous dividends later. And, you know, everyone the company understands if we're delivering a piece of software, why? It's not random. It's like, yeah, I spent a month in service. I know why we'd be building that. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of downstream benefits from that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, in fairness, it's our company onboarding programs run by service. So they actually, we do like values and company history. And there's a lot of stuff that's in there as well. But it is, you know, it is a lot of time learning the product and actually serving customers. Yeah. Is there anything special that you need to do to set up people who are not customer service people for success in that month? We take everyone through the same program. Mm-hmm. I will say, you know, I think we probably bias to, like, we're not going to hire somebody who we feel like for any role, yep. who's probably going to fail in service. Yep. So maybe through that lens, that question would be uh, sort of pertinent. But uh, we find like, hey, if you have common sense and some self-awareness and some social skills at all, you can probably do a great job if we give you the right training. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we, we do. Do people ever go back to customer service after having been at the company uh, yes. for a while? 
this was something we used to really excel at and again has gotten hard with scale mm-hmm. i hate to say right mm-hmm. we used to send people back uh, yeah. and it was a big part of what we did and we do have people who still go back they're called guest stars our support folks they call themselves rock stars and so mm-hmm. we have guest stars who you can go back and it's encouraged and it, it happens and we've got programs around it but it's not as mandated as it once was One of the things that I think about having been with the company since the beginning and having it been now, you know, 15 plus years is those changes and being comfortable with them and saying, you know, this is the best we can do now, given where we're at and having the perspective to know, well, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking about where things are like it sounds like you are over the next five, 10 years. Is that something that you had to learn along the way like I did to become comfortable with that? Or has it always just come naturally for you? No, no. I think this notion of accepting the trade-offs of of change and growth, Mm -hmm. it's not always easy. You know, I, I know one for me was recognizing, I can't remember how many people we were, we call it like 40 people. And, uh, you know, that was when I realized like, geez, I'm not going to have a personal relationship with everybody on the the team. And I just remember sitting there thinking like, oh, I was totally bummed out. And I was like, okay, so far that's the biggest give I have to offer up for all these gets of like, I've got a really interesting set of problems I'm chewing on. There's a great group of people here. We're really helping our customers and making a difference in the world. Like, okay, you know, get on with it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think anytime you upset a like an invisible system, if you will, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm very mindful of that. And how do we find a path where you ideally improve, but you know, certainly retain the, the spirit and uh, goodness of whatever was working before? You know, that's kind of the art and the science of, of change, right? Um, but, mm-hmm. but you do need to progress and things that worked at one size and stage don't work at another. Uh, it's just a fact. And so trying to fix it all together and keep it growing is, is kind of the puzzle that's, that's sort of fun to me. I also realized at one point that like people don't have the baggage that I do and baggage I mean in a negative sense it doesn't always need to be negative of like for for the people who join today this is the way it is they they don't have any knowledge about the way it was 3 4 5 10 years ago and so that should give me perspective on like I'm looking at this in a completely different way than they are yeah and that's been helpful because I realized that every day, you know, especially as you grow, you're starting from day one for a lot of people and you have the opportunity to start today better than yesterday and to be continually reinventing the best version of your company every time someone joins. I think that's right. And I think one of the things I've come around to is so long as it's thoughtful, mm-hmm. And sort of like maybe I'll call it well designed. I'm a big fan of change. Like I, I want things to be different, right? It should be a form of progress. You know, some changes definitely don't feel that way, but I find I get energy from it. I don't know, but it sounds like hey, like change is hard, and you know, like I don't know, I don't know, put words in your mouth, but that mm-hmm. sounds like there's a, there's a real wrestling match there inside yourself. I think there was. I'm I'm well over it now. <laughs> yeah, I think around the ten year mark, and I think that that was for me mostly psychological of, okay, I've done this for a decade now. I'm really thinking long-term and that, you know, this could be what I do for the rest of my life. And am I okay with what we've accomplished so far? And will I be okay with the road we're headed down? And so that was the process that I went through 
as a founder who was opposed to a lot of growth and change becoming more okay with that. So I think that was my personal perspective and I'm, I'm well past that now. For me, maybe it was those those years early on when I was thinking about scale, I just didn't even understand the questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think knowing that these other things lurked in the future, but not knowing how to even begin to think about them, that I think was a hard thing for me because it was just sort of overwhelming. And now it's kind of like, hey, let's make the changes. It feels good. Like I want to have progress. And, you know, I'm pretty adamant about maintaining some things too, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? I think that's kind of the art and the science of it, but not not in any kind of dogmatic way, more for a reason. And if there's a good reason, I can be convinced to change just about anything as far as I can tell, you know, if the right rationale or impetus is there, right? So, yeah. It sounds like one of the things that you've worked to foster on your team and in your culture is the distributed decision-making and ownership over things. I like to think so. I think people did not have that sense in the earlier years Mm -hmm. (laughs) as much. Was your focusing on and improving that a reaction to you sort of being in control of everything early on? I I think so. Mm -hmm. You know, my take was the biggest helper in it all to me was just hiring those really great people. Like Mm I always struggled with some of the judgment calls I was seeing prior to kind of getting some of the right folks around me. And Mm -hmm. it was a lot easier for me, right? It's like, call it like a competence bar. I, I had some, by the way, in the earliest days, I had some just amazing people around me and they've gone off to do, in some cases, great things. In some cases, they're still with us, but they weren't as seasoned you know, didn't have the same gravitas, like just needed a few more lessons under their belt mm-hmm. themselves, just like me. Anyhow, so that once I started getting a few of those people, my life just got a lot easier. Yeah. In my experience, you start really small and you're bootstrapping as well. And, you know, you're starting from, we have our digital and marketing agency, like this is what we're working on. And so many of the people who are part of the growth are doing it from, you know, at ThoughtBot, we have a really great track record that I'm proud of, of people joining as a designer or developer, but then growing into other roles and responsibilities that are not design and development and really having an impact on the company. But then we end up with a team of people who don't really know what we're doing and we're all learning for the first time. And there are times where that holds us back. Yeah, it's this balance and this ebb and flow. And then we get to a place sometimes where we've helped people build up their careers. They're tremendous. And it's time for them to go to their next thing. And that Mm -hmm. can be like eight years in. And it's like, oh, well, we're going to have to build up behind there. Um, You know, it's never static, right? It's just never static. Mm -hmm. I know you probably can't discuss the future too much, but like what's on your radar, either short term or long term as to the things you're thinking about or, or working on for FreshBooks, for where the company's going? Yeah, well, one of the things is just my role and changing it to be a little more about just solving that problem mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to kind of operating the business, mm-hmm. you know, worrying about are the trains running on time and the rest of it. So I'm sort of excited about a new role that is a little further out, actually a little more, I'm hoping into the weeds on, on serving customers and helping to just culturally make sure as we're hundreds of people now, you know, other people would say, hey, that's the last thing you need to do. <laughs> you know, I would say, oh, contraire, it's always important. And I think uh, I'm trying to free up a few of my cycles to you know, continue to really drive some of that home and make sure that we continue to sort of be the best that there is out there. 
When you are thinking about something like that for yourself and for your role, who do you talk about with that at the company? How do you start putting that idea out there in the company? So there's a couple of ways I approach it. So first of all, I probably do seek my own counsel for a little bit. Mm -hmm. But as I do that, I will generally expose my head to people, just be like, hey, here are the things I'm thinking about. And sometimes I'll get some stuff that influences my thinking back from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also have some key people. You know, I'm the kind of person who, depending on the topic, I go to different folks. Yeah. So it's not like there's one person I go to and take all my challenges to. There are different people for different challenges. And they, you know, some people who've been with us for a long time can tell me much better, you know, that something's off kilter, you know, true, whatever. Whereas somebody newer can help me, you know, solve a different kind of problem. So I kind of see it as you got to work some of these things up and then you're finding, well, who are you going to work with? And, and then maybe it's like, I need to figure out what needs to be done. And then I'm just like assigning it. It's mm-hmm. like, guess what? You know, you're leading it, figure out a team of people. I want to have the first meeting to tell you what it is I want you to get to. And then uh, we'll book that next week. And and then you all tell me the plan for how to get it done, right? So mm-hmm. it's a pretty nebulous kind of thing. I think the key is, as a leader, to have enough time to be in touch with the instinctual side and act on it. I think sometimes where I've gotten it wrong before is I've just been busy. And busy's okay, and you're driving things forward, and no one can argue that you're not working hard. But I feel like my superpower is more on that instinctual creative side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm working at how to spend more time on that and future product and you know marketing and culture, all that good, good squishy stuff. That's great. Well, I wish you the best of luck in uh, accomplishing all of that and more. If people want to follow along with you, where's the best place that they might be able to do that? Check us out at at Mm freshbooks.com. My ask would be, if you haven't checked us out in a while, do check us out again. Two reasons for it. Uh, We have our new offering. And uh, also, we just launched a whole bunch of stuff you may not be aware of to support you as you scale from an accounting standpoint, double ledger, bank rec, stuff that may not sound exciting. But if you knew FreshBooks before and you were looking for that, I'm pleased to report we now offer it. And that was the same, easy to use, just built for uh, owners who invoice focus as we've always had. Awesome. Mike, thanks very much for joining me. I really appreciate your insight and your time. And again, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Chad. You as well. Thanks for having me. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.